every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty Radio Show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, welcome to the uh, Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders. What uh, what an opportunity and what an honor to be able to spend a little bit of time with you here on the America Out Loud Network and to examine some of the things going on in our lives today that hopefully will uh, provide some perspective and maybe just a little bit of encouragement that, hey, we've got this as long as we stay engaged. We're living through some truly historic things. And, and that doesn't mean necessarily they're going to be comfortable. That just means that... You know, there's there's some very impactful stuff that's taking place right now. We're a part of it. And I just can't shake this sense that uh, there's there's purpose in what's taking place. Not so much, you know, like, uh, how can I put this? I, I look at it this way. I think that uh, that we have all been handed an absolutely incredible opportunity to play a part in some truly historic things that are going on. And I don't care if it's a big part or a small part, you know, it's 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 not a matter of, well, did you get a lot of press? Did you uh, get the Nobel Peace Prize or anything like that to show that you were a part of it? I think it's more a matter of every one of us has a role to play. And if we play it, with God's help, we will make the difference that we were individually born to make. I know that sounds lofty, but I feel it to my bones. In fact, programs like this one, programs like mine exist in part to help provide encouragement and insights into what's going on around us. A big part of what I do, as you may have noticed, is I try to help people withstand the daily barrage of official agitprop. We hear the term misinformation thrown around today, but the funny thing is the people who are most desperate to control misinformation seem to be the biggest purveyors of misinformation and and it sure feels for all the world like that misinformation has the purpose of keeping us you know maybe not so much totally in the dark but just not getting too close to the truth if we get too close to the truth we might stop believing or at least stop you know being held in thrall to to whatever those in power or who wish to have power over us want us to believe well i came across an article And I want to share this with you. I thought this was a very useful one. This is a a down-and-dirty guide to recognizing regime propaganda. And you're going to learn some new terms here, but this is really useful stuff. Michael Anton is the author. This was published on AmericanMind.org. And the title is, That's Not Happening, and it's good that it is. (laughs) You confused? Okay, listen. This, This is his explanation. He says, gaslighting getting you down, feeling like the regime has dialed the megaphone up to and past 11, 
Well, you're not crazy. It's definitely happening and likely to get worse as our master's ability to cope with reality further worsens. Or worse, they gain the complete and absolute control they seek. They're both scornful and terrified of dissent, which explains why they incessantly shriek at us and lie to our faces. So to help you navigate the twit storm, Michael Anton says, I present a guide to seven of the regime's most common, oft-employed lies. Now, this is not meant to be comprehensive. He says, I'm sure these are tactics they use that either I haven't, or there are tactics, rather, they use that I haven't crystallized or that aren't front of the mind at the moment. He says, I encourage others to expand the catalog with their own observations. The better we can understand how they try to manipulate us, the better we can resist and counter it all. So let's start with the unholy trinity of ruling class horse manure. These first three are similar, but subtle differences determine the ways they're used in differing circumstances. The first one is the law of merited impossibility. Now he says, the coinage is Rod Dreher's, and it goes back to the early debates on homosexual marriage. As Dreher formulates it, the law of merited impossibility holds that that will never happen. And when it does, boy, will you homophobes, transphobes, racist, sexist, or whatever deserve it. So this law is first used to disarm resistance to the latest leftist enthusiasm. Whatever the innovation is, it will have no adverse consequences. None. Puberty blockers, disfiguring surgeries have no downsides whatsoever. How dare you suggest they might? And its second purpose is to dismiss out-of-hand slippery slope arguments, despite or because of the fact that every single argument over the past 20 years at least has proved true. Worried that allowing people to self-identify as whatever sex they want will lead to pervy 50-year-old men exposing themselves to tween girls? insist loudly and indignantly that will never happen. And anyone who suggests it might is just an alarmist bigot with a heart full of hate. Now, the third purpose is to enforce the new caste system. Those who get to impose fresh irrational irrational indignities on the rest of us are the upper caste. Those who harbor or even have reservations are lower. The latter are not allowed to harbor much, less express any doubts. Whatever humiliation the upper caste has planned for us, we deserve and must meekly accept. So when said pervy 50-year-old actually does start waving around her equipment in the girls' locker room, if any parent dares object, let him have it with both barrels. That thing that 10 seconds ago you said would never happen, now it's righteous punishment for the retrograde. Michael Anton says the law of merited impossibility has done wonders for the left in helping to ram through a wide variety of radical societal changes and cow into silence all opposition. It's currently busy destroying girls' and women's sports, an outcome that we were assured would never happen. Though one wonders what the ladies did to deserve it. Now, the law is a bit passé, however, because our rulers rarely feel the need to reassure normie Americans that everything will turn out okay, that the things we most fear won't happen. Mostly, the holders of the megaphone just skip to the second half. The angry insistence that we deserve it. Okay, here's the next one. The celebration parallax. A parallax is the apparent difference in position of the same object seen from different vantage points. For instance, an analog speedometer that reads 60 miles per hour to the driver, but 50 to the passenger 
you know, that, that even though the needle itself is only in one place, it's a matter of where you happen to be standing or sitting, as the case may be. The celebration parallax could be stated as the same fact pattern is either true and glorious or false and scurrilous, depending on who states it. So in contemporary speech, any controversial topic, or to say a better uh, regime priority, the factor, the decisive factor that you're looking at is the intent of the speaker. If she can be presumed to be celebrating the phenomenon under discussion, she may shout her approval from the rooftops. If not, he better shut up before someone comes along to shut him up. Now note also the key distinction here is celebration versus non-celebration, not support versus opposition. So one need not actually clearly oppose the subject under discussion in order to be blameworthy. Declining or neglecting to celebrate it forcefully enough is enough. As in Stalin's Russia, lack of enthusiastic clapping is regarded as opposition. The legitimacy of one's right to state the same identical fact in the same identical language depends on who one is and what one thinks of it. And since the left assumes that all persons of color approve of the phenomena covered by the celebration parallax, the parallax is really a test to distinguish allies from deplorables. Now, he says, to the best of my recollection, the origin of the celebration parallax arose from the need to defend affirmative action, a very unpopular policy since its inception. And the party line, therefore, goes like this. People of color must be granted explicit explicit preferences to overcome America's legacy of racism so that we may diversify America's power centers and end white male dominance, a move that in addition to being necessary to address the country's racism, improves these institutions by infusing them with different and hitherto neglected points of view. Also, kids of color need role models who look like themselves. But, he points out, there is no such thing as reverse discrimination, which is itself a racist term, and there are no quotas, another racist term, whatsoever, but only timetables, goals, and measures to evaluate applicants and candidates holistically. Now, Michael Anton says, on no subject is the parallax more prevalent than immigration. Depending on who's doing the talking, the demographic transformation of the United States is either a glorious trend that portends a permanent democratic majority and a more vibrant future, or else a conspiracy theory that is not happening in any way at all, no how. He says, the left insists that concerns from certain quarters that immigration policy in America and Europe amounts to a great replacement is dangerous, evil, racist, false conspiracy theory. But a leftist New York Times columnist can write an article entitled, We Can Replace Them, and nothing. Same fundamental point, except she's all for it, and her targets aren't. A U.S. senator can exult that demographic change will doom Republicans. Joe Biden himself can refer to an unrelenting stream of immigration, except they're celebrating it and calling for it. Anyone on the right who uses the exact same words will not merely be denounced, the very fact pattern that is affirmed when Biden uh, says it will be denied when the rightist repeats it. Next, you have the law of salutary contradiction, whose formulation is, that's not happening, and it's good that it is. (laughs) So while the law of merited impossibility applies to the future, this one's about the present. It's what the ruling class immediately switches to after what they insisted would never happen is happening before everyone's eyes. 
For instance, is the NSA spying on Tucker Carlson? That's an insane conspiracy theory, which is also warranted by Tucker's treasonous contacts with Russian officials as he seeks an interview with Putin. Is the Biden administration investing in illegal immigrants? And then inviting in illegal immigrants rather than putting them on military planes and shipping them to the heartland? Absolutely not. And these future Nobel Prize winners deserve their shot at the American dream. Michael Anton says, once you learn to recognize this pattern, you see it everywhere. It is the cornerstone of ruling class rhetoric in the current year. Next, we have the Smales exhortation. Turning from the unholy trinity, we see that the ruling class condemns all of us as entitled boors. In their eyes, we deserve nothing. We have no reasonable wants nor any just complaints. Our only role is to accept getting nothing and learning to like it. Our masters bleed about democracy, but have defined the word to mean getting exactly what we, in other words, they, want. Any ostensibly democratic outcome that might result in us getting what we want is ipso facto illegitimate. Border wall, fascist. Immigration enforcement, racist and fascist. Law and order, double racist and fascist. Better trade deals, economically illiterate. An end to endless wars, catastrophic. And also somehow anti-Semitic. Penis-free girls' bathrooms, transphobic. No matter is too small, too local, too private, or too inconsequential to escape their gaze and slip their punishment. Bake the cake, bigot. He says mostly what they bleat, though, is anti-American, anti-white, anti-conservative, anti-Christian, anti-rural, anti-Southern, anti-red state, anti-redneck, anti-working class hate. Every media organ and cultural citadel blares this message loudly and incessantly. And the purpose is hard to figure. On one hand, it's demoralizing, which certainly serves ruling class ends, and it fires up their coalition. On the other hand, if you're trying to boil a frog... It's best not to tell him the plan, as he might try to jump out of the pot. Which brings us to the lie-back imperative. This tactic and the next one are related to what Steve Saylor called the war on noticing. See, the regime knows it's in a difficult rhetorical position. The heart of its argument is that some people are inherently innocent and good, while others are inherently guilty and bad and must be treated accordingly. Now, to ears insufficiently attuned to this new understanding of justice... This can sound unjust. Tying moral worth to circumstances of birth, not treating people equally, punishing the living for the sins of the dead. Why, all this is contrary to appearances, logic, and common sense. Just requires considerable explanation. Now, to the extent that people get it, they will sharply divide between those who say that the advantaged have it coming and those who object, no, I don't. He says the problem for the regime, therefore, is that while its message is very effectual, effective rather at egging on its own side, it can be equally effective at alarming and rousing its targets. The ideal solution would be to come up with a public message that rallies the regime's base while lulling its targets. But this turns out to be very difficult, if not impossible. Another option is to forbid the targets from speaking up, hence the celebration parallax. But the regime's preferred mode is not merely to allow its targets to speak, but to require it, so long as the targets deny the regime apparatchik who said what she said. Hence the response to, you are evil and deserve what's coming to you, must be, you don't think ill of me and wish me no harm. Every punch in the face must be publicly rationalized by the victim as a massage. 
The purpose is partly to bully the frog into staying in the pot and partly a matter of humiliation. In the oft-quoted words of Anthony Daniels, a society of emasculated liars is easy to control. Now, a great many conservatives are not merely willing, but eager to play along. Indeed, whole institutions of the establishment right do little else but reassure their ostensible constituency that the left not only doesn't mean its proto-genocidal rhetoric, but isn't even saying it. It's an odd feature of the current year that calling an avowed enemy a liar, publicly insisting that her plain words could not possibly mean what they plainly say, not only fails to provoke an angry denial, but is welcomed by the liar herself. Anything to keep the regime's targets sonambulant for as long as possible. The more Americans who wake up and realize the contemporary leftism is a revenge plot with themselves as its target, the more will object and try to stop it. This is what the regime at present most fears and is trying to prevent. Now, the final one is the enmity the enmity counter-accusation. And this is perhaps the most brazen. Basically, the enemy calls you its enemy for recognizing its enmity. So as as regime hacks spew vile, borderline, sometimes explicitly violent rhetoric at you, they will immediately wheel and counter-attack if you dare object. Don't appreciate being called evil because of your race? Why, then you are divisive. Dare put up your hands to block an incoming punch? That's violence. You're just supposed to take it. And if there's one thing that I could urge just in in way of caution, it's, you know, it's good to know about these things just so you can recognize it. You don't fall prey to it. You're not able to be manipulated. They're enemies who treat you like enemies while they insist that you treat them like friends. At least, though, unlike the housebroken right, they'll stab you in the front. Michael Anton says a related point is that if you so much as speculate As to where their insane vitriol might lead the country, you will be accused of wishing for that outcome. It's entirely possible that decades of anti-American, anti-white, anti-Christian animosity, coupled with nation-destroying trade, immigration, and foreign policies, will not lead to civil war. Then again, it's entirely possible that they might. And if they do, the ruling class and the left will bear the blame. Naturally, though, they will blame us. In fact, he says, indeed, they already are. Attempts to head off such a conflict by warning about it are treated as provocations intended to produce such conflict. One can be forgiven for wondering if their plan is to start it and then say, we started it. Sort of like insisting Poland triggered the Second World War by shooting back. You're worthless, baby. And if you even think of trying to leave me, I'll kill you. So this brings us to the very last uh, of of these uh, bits of establishment propaganda. Deplorable Americans are loudly and incessantly said to be the worst incessantly said to be the worst people in the history of the planet. Pure, unadulterated evil with no legitimate concerns, interests, or grievances. And Michael Anton says, Well, okay, then why live with us? Why treat as anathema even the most moderate, banal attempt to allow some measure of federalism and local control? He says there can only be two answers. Either our masters know or into it deep down that we can live without them, but they can't live without us, or else they want to keep us around to administer what they view as a deserved punishment. Now he says, being neither a psychologist nor a theologian, I could not say whether the roots of this behavior are psychotic or demonic. But in this layman's judgment, it exhibits key characteristics of both. And you got to recognize, too, when, when you're actually being abused. 
I'm going to shift gears here. I want to talk just for a moment about uh, about a, th- a piece from Jeff Minnick published on everything. Oh, sorry. Intellectualtakeout.org. Got to get my, my sources right here. For some people, the thought that we're even being abused at the hands of the political classes is a difficult thing to consider, let alone accept. But I want you to hear what Jeff Minnick has to say about this. And he starts with a story. He says, when I went to pick up my laundry last week, one of the employees who had just finished folding my clothes began weeping. This is the last load I'll ever do here, she said in a choked voice. They're letting us all go. That one little stifled sob described more than just one woman bemoaning the loss of her job. In it was the relentless cry of the average American who was increasingly crushed by the ignorance of our elites. Now, Jeff Minnick said, I've known this woman and her co-workers for over a year. And when I found out it cost me only a few bucks extra to have them do my laundry, a task I dislike, I told myself, I'm never washing clothes again. Ever since that day, one of these women, whom I always tip generously, has performed that chore. And now the new owner of the laundromat is getting rid of them. Now, he says all of these women are at least 60 years old. In fact, one of them was working there at age 86 until she had a fall at home. They're overweight and out of shape and as country as pickup trucks and hound dogs. Some have worked at the laundromat for more than 20 years. He says, I'm going to miss these women. A friend wondered aloud whether the new owners might offer to retrain them for another job, which caused me to laugh bitterly. That's for corporations and management. In their eyes, people like those ladies are trash. He says, an excellent excellent analysis of the war the elites and our politicians are waging on the poor and middle class is seen in Christopher Bedford's A Seven-Day Journey Through the Revolt Against the American People. He points out the many abuses our elites committed during the Wuhan virus shutdowns, as well as their responsibility for the skyrocketing crime rates in our country, their indifference to our children's terrible school experiences during the pandemic closures, and their bleak determination or their termination of thousands of jobs in our fossil fuel industry. Bedford rightly notes the top echelons of society don't know or they don't remember what it's like to work by the hour, and they don't care about the people who do. Later, he writes, every single day, more and more Americans are finding their lives held hostage by the ideology of an elite that has the privilege of avoiding nearly all consequences for its own actions. Now, Bedford is right on target here. It wasn't the rich who suffered unemployment and homes lost to foreclosure during the pandemic. It wasn't the elites whose children received a lousy education when schools closed. It isn't our wealthy politicians who live in the foul, dangerous neighborhoods of our inner cities. Yet on they go, ordering the rest of us about like the serfs some of us are becoming. Blind to the suffering of so many of our citizens, or worse, throwing money at problems that instead demand a commitment to make the American dream available to the kid on the street in Detroit or the girl living in a trailer park in Silva, North Carolina. No, for the last 18 months, Jeff Minnick says, and particularly since January of this year, we've seen many Americans treated like cattle. No, worse than cattle. Because ranchers or farmers care about the health and safety of their livestock. Our elite's disassociation from the reality of life lived by the rest of us comes in part from a conviction of superiority. In the article, The Dangers of Ego in Leadership, on the executive training website Cashbox Coaching, the author writes that a leader's inflated ego comes from a sense of superiority and certainty that exceeds the bounds of confidence and talent. It is this kind of egotism 
which some might call narcissism, that reigns in our ruling class. The members of that class and many of their followers believe they have the right to dictate to the rest of us because they think of us as their inferiors. Because of the need to protect their sense of superiority, the executive coach tells us, egoists are often disconnected from the world, often naive about its workings. Ignorance of the law, as the saying goes, is not an excuse, nor is ignorance of what those one wishes to govern. Someday, maybe, not now, but not soon, but someday, a reckoning is coming for these people. I can see we're up against the break here, so let's uh, let's pause. This is the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders. We'll be back in just a moment on the America Out Loud Network. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall Vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only 8 seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology, designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. And it's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses. 
as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. And once again, welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in today for Tim Alders. Very happy to be uh, spending some time with you here on the America Out Loud Network. Talking about the stuff that matters. And hopefully advancing a take that uh, leaves you feeling more sure of who you are and what you stand for than you were before. So equality before the law used to be a foundational principle of a free and just society. But the current push that we are seeing to expand registration for military conscription, conscription, in other words, uh, registering for the draft, to women might just be over the line. Saw a great piece from Thomas L. Knapp, and uh, this is one I thought was worth sharing. He says, in a rare moment of moral clarity, U.S. Senator Tom Cotton points out that America's daughters shouldn't be drafted against their will. Now, as a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, the usually bellicose Cotton voted against advancing the upcoming National Defense Authorization Act after committee chair Jack Reed added an amendment requiring women between the ages of 18 and 25 to register with the Selective Service System. Now, Thomas Knapp says, hey, it's good to see Cotton on the right side of an issue, as happens occasionally, very occasionally, and the NDAA being mostly unrelated to anything resembling actual natural, national defense, rather, deserves to go down hard for many reasons. But he asks, where is Cotton's opposition to requiring men to register for the draft? In the early 1970s, the U.S. Armed Forces transitioned to an all-volunteer force after drafting 2.2 million men into its Vietnam War machine between 1964 and 1973. About 1.5 million Americans were drafted for the Korean War, 10 million for World War II, and 2.8 million for World War I. Now, draft registration ended in 1975, but resumed in 1980. Unfortunately, even during the darkest days of the nation-building fiasco in Afghanistan and the naked aggression of the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq... Congress quailed from reinstating the draft and allowed the military to lower recruitment standards instead. Maybe that explains how a sociopath like Tom Cotton became an infantry officer. But nearly half a century after the last involuntary induction, the shadow of potential conscription, conscription rather, still looms over young Americans. Thomas L. Knapp says, in fact, many states have moved against the ability to resist draft registration as a form of civil disobedience. As a brave handful of Americans, including prominent libertarian commentator and personal mentor Paul Jacob, went to prison for doing in the early 1980s by automatically registering males who apply for driver's licenses or state ID cards. He says, both of my kids received postcards from Selective Service thanking them for registering 
even though they never did so. That's because the state of Florida did that for them. I actually watched my son go through this a couple of years ago. Same thing, the state of Utah. Thoughtfully registered him just in case we need you. Now, Supreme Court's rulings to to the contrary notwithstanding, conscription is clearly unconstitutional under the 13th Amendment. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Thomas Knapp says even if it wasn't unconstitutional, it would still be slavery, and slavery would still be wrong. So instead of registering women for potential slavery, draft registration should be ended entirely and permanently. I think I agree with him on this. Okay, final note here. Let's talk about the scapegoating of the unvaccinated. Holy cow, did we go from, you know, uh, hey, it'd be really nice if you got the uh, got the vaccine. Hey, I'll give you a free hamburger. Hey, look, you could be in a lottery for a million dollars if you get the vaccine. To the voluntary phase has ended. Or simply calling it a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Somebody's trying to turn us into warring tribes. And this is one of the most effective tools that I have seen to date. It's crazy. Annie Holmquist, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, says the numbers don't support the scapegoating of the unvaccinated. She says if you're tired of the pandemic and you just want to go back to normal, David Frum at The Atlantic has news for you. It's all the stupid people who refuse to take the vaccine that are prolonging our COVID misery. She says, oh, wait, that's not it exactly. In actuality, it's all Trump's fault. From once a leading voice of the conservative establishment, declares pro-Trump America has decided that vaccine refusal is a statement of identity and a test of loyalty. And Annie Holmquist points out that's an odd statement given Trump was in favor of the COVID vaccine, got it himself, and even launched Operation Warp Speed to develop and roll out the vaccine quickly. And Frum also seems to forget that many liberals have been skeptical of the vaccine as well, while numbers of conservatives, including Alabama Governor Kay Ivey, who recently suggested we blame the unvaccinated for the pandemic surge, have staunchly supported the vaccine. Isn't it odd that uh, stupidity and selfishness are the only possible reasons that we're given to consider as to why someone might not be down to accept the vaccine? Seems like that's kind of a limited, uh, you know, bit of debate. That's the only possible thing. You're just being stupid and you're just being selfish. As Annie Holmquist points out, the fact is many unvaccinated people may not be acting out of willfulness or willfulness rather or spite, as Frum suggests. They may instead be looking at the data and wisely expressing caution until more is known about the vaccine and its effects. More information is surfacing on that front every day, but you probably wouldn't know it unless you look past the talking points of our ruling elites. In a recent article, she says uh, Alex Berenson, a New York Times reporter turned author, explained that the U.S. doesn't give the full truth about who's dying or who's even having complications from the COVID vaccine. The official narrative advanced by Dr. Anthony Fauci and others is that the unvaccinated are the ones getting sick and dying, but the data shows That narrative is false. Berenson notes that official numbers in the U.S. do not include the partially vaccinated. Authorities claim a person's not fully protected until several weeks after they've had both doses. So anyone who's received a shot 
but has not completed the full course of treatment is treated as unvaccinated for statistical purposes. Now, that's not how things are usually done with most medical treatments, nor is it the case in other countries. Thus, many U.S. COVID cases in the last few months attributed to unvaccinated individuals actually occurred in folks who were partially vaccinated, a fact that's often suppressed and never reaches the ears of mainstream America. She goes on to quote Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who talks about how violence finds its only refuge in falsehood and falsehood its only support in violence. The two things are absolutely paired. And she says, we are being throttled with ever more force. A fact revealed by Berenson's information about COVID as well as the increasing censorship that he's encountering. And this throttling will only continue in the weeks ahead, not only with regard to COVID, but in other realms as well. The question we must ask ourselves is whether we will allow this throttling and violence to continue. If we don't speak up, then we're a party to falsehood and violence just as much as are the elites. It's time to make a conscious choice about whether to choose truth or falsehood. So I'm adding a few reality supplements to your diet. I appreciate the opportunity to do so. I want to start with uh, the concept of outsourcing our thinking as well as our policy decisions. This is something that has been, I mean, as, as science and technology have progressed and, you know, the complexity of, of various issues has, has grown with, uh, you know, the abundance of human knowledge and, and what we've been able to discover We have seen people more willing to, well, you know, I don't know how to put a man on the moon, but my government does, so NASA, you go ahead and do your thing. And in some areas, that may not be such a bad idea. Although, (laughs) you look at at what the billionaires are doing right now with their, their privately funded space races, you know, they're still advancing the technology. They're still bringing a lot of cool things to the table, but they're not, uh, you know, fleecing the taxpayers in order to make it happen. Just a little something to consider. There's also a downside when we outsource our thinking and our policy decisions to experts who are politicized or otherwise who come with an agenda. In fact, it's a higher price tag than most people realize. Found a great article today on the American Institute for Economic Research website. This is from Christopher Lingle, and it's called Scientific Authoritarianism Erodes Private Property and Human Liberty. And he starts with a quote from Hannah Arendt on the origins of totalitarianism. Hannah Arendt said, A fundamental difference between modern dictatorships and all other tyrannies of the past is that terror is no longer used as a means to exterminate and frighten opponents, but as an instrument to rule masses of people who are perfectly obedient. Oh man, I feel like I need to just sit back and kind of let that settle in for a moment because does that not sound like... Kind of the, does that not sound like the dynamic that's driving this this coercive push for we've got to have everybody vaccinated and anybody who doesn't get vaccinated is only resisting it out of a sense of selfishness and stupidity? No, people literally are saying that. In fact, I think it was David Frum who who was he was actually a very eloquent voice for conservatism for many many years. I mean, I thought the guy was on some issues. I thought he was right on, but. Really? Is that is that how limited the debate is? Well, there's only a couple of reasons why a person wouldn't get the vaccine. They're stupid or they're selfish. 
It couldn't possibly be something else. And I know, you know, this happens on the right, too. We we tend to question, you know, well, why did this person adv- advance this particular ideology? It's only because they're evil or because they're stupid. Most of the time, that's not true. But there's a huge problem when you start letting experts make those kinds of decisions or follow experts so religiously and so um, you're, you're so enthralled to them that you can't even conceive of the idea of questioning what they're saying. Now you're starting to put them above reality itself. And that doesn't sound anything like science. If it's something that can't be questioned, then it's not science. Christopher Lingle says, as a recipient of the EC of an E.C. Harwood Visiting Research Fellowship at the American Institute for Economic Research, he says, I'm inspired by tales of principled battles that Colonel Hardwood, Harwood rather fought in support of the ideals behind the U.S. Constitution. Taking his oath to support that great document as a lodestar, his support for the cause of human liberty and personal dignity led him to be a vocal opponent of the policies of FDR's New Deal. As such, he continued doing so despite orders from his military commanders to cease his criticisms, eventually choosing to take early retirement from a promising military career as a graduate of West Point. Now, Christopher Lingle says, my lesson from his brave acts against the most powerful institutions in the U.S. is that being a true patriot requires supporting an ideology of individual freedom rather than accepting partisan interests that violate foundational precepts. As such, Americans wishing for a united and prosperous country should follow Edward Harwood's example to challenge the authority of government officials and question assertions of experts they use for support. Now, he says this contrarian behavior is even more urgent given the drift of public policy in recent years that would expand political powers beyond FDR's wildest dreams at the expense of private property rights and human liberty. As it is, Public policies have become increasingly pointed toward responses to claims that irresponsible actions by humans are causing environmental degradation and climate change. And while the emergence of a novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, and the disease that it might cause, COVID-19, are now at center stage, they share equal billing with the former only slightly in the background. In all events... This pair of menaces offers a convenient pretense for government officials to seek expansions in their powers that give them greater control over human actions and private resources. Initially, the specter of climate change was not enough to induce most citizens to accept enhanced political power that would diminish their liberty and curtail their personal rights. However, fear ginned up during the recent pandemic based on pronouncements reflecting expert authority caused individuals to stop thinking of health as a personal issue and to embrace public health. Now, the notion that public health reflects an objective reality must be challenged, especially since so much focus is only on one among many viruses and only one disease among many ailments that afflict mankind. He says it's troubling that these political feats of legerdemain have have induced rather many citizens to accept an artificial collective construct with solidarity dominating individual autonomy and security elevated over human liberty. Man, that, that could not be stated better. And while human health and protecting or rehabilitating the natural environment are indisputably worthy goals, a holistic approach to these matters requires considering their impact on the individual lives of humans. 
curbs on individual behavior and resource use to serve public health or the natural environment involve an unhealthy confusion of politics and science. In the end, the non-pharmaceutical interventions related to the COVID-19 pandemic might turn out to have been a dress rehearsal that serves as a roadmap for climate action to offset global warming. And even if there is agreement on problems arising from human activity, the debate should be about the efficacy of the range of remedial actions that are available. As such, the quest for solutions should begin with an understanding that government interventions can often cause problems rather than be an appropriate remedy. He says, for example, governments failed to serve as guardians of the natural environment as seen in the ecological destruction in the name of authoritarian socialism practiced by the Soviet bloc or mainland China. In those cases, the expansion of the scope of private actions and a partial retreat from state control over resources brought improvements. While such obvious failures of authoritarianism combined or rather associated with communism led them to be widely rejected, there is a risk that ecologically based or pseudoscientific authoritarianism could replace it. That sounds like a legitimate concern to me. In the article, he talks about a book by the name of The Counter-Revolution of Science, in which F.A. Hayek identified the possibility of a pseudoscientific authoritarianism under the rubric of scientism, involving a shift in the scientific method from strict empiricism, critical thought, and objectivity, toward non-empirical, purely subjective, elitist, and collectivist approaches to science. And I'm sorry, as I read about that latter approach, I don't know why, but Dr. Fauci's mind, or Dr. Fauci's face popped into my mind. And, and it's only for this reason, okay? I don't want to make it sound like you're pronouncing judgment on the soul of Dr. Fauci. I'm just observing that he is, he epitomizes the kind of expert who is joined to government at the hip and is absolutely 100% incapable of uttering the words, I was wrong. Or, I don't know. Christopher Lingle says, as such, consensus replaces strict empiricism and independent open criticism normally associated with the scientific method. Since scientism, as scientific consensus, trumps everything else, including reason, there's a danger that falsehoods, even those previously proven false, could be elevated by just a majority of scientists accepting them. He says an emerging form of scientism follows along the lines of the communist-era bureaucrats who engaged in social engineering and compelled individuals to act on behalf of the wider community. Pursuit of social goals, whether public health or environmentalism, that ignore individual rights and human liberty have often led to disastrous outcomes. Indeed, the worst failures of socialism and the pursuit of social goals were brought about by unintended and unforeseen consequences. Besides material depredation associated with historical experiments with socialism, there was a loss of social capital from interfering with mutual trust that tends to emerge from voluntary exchanges. Should citizens resist limits on their individual liberty and rights to achieve collective goals, authoritarian repression becomes an inevitable instrument to, quote, pacify the masses. Such excesses and abuse of state power occurred over a vast range of collectivist regimes. So, for example, National Socialists under Adolf Hitler implemented policies that might appeal to some of the most extreme ecologists of today. 
One element of the philosophy of the Nazi party promoted the good of the whole over the good of the individual. Now, on the one hand, there was an explicit opposition to alcohol and tobacco consumption. More ominously, compulsory sterilization of, was required of the mentally ill, ending with more than 350,000 persons being sterilized against their will by 1939. Medical technicians, central to the operations of the Nazi state, perpetuated scientific nostrums of evolution and genetic hygiene based on eugenics to advance racial purity. Christopher Lingle says many Nazi supporters in the early days of the regime may never have imagined the terrible outcomes of following this foul ideology. As such... Caution should be applied to assess the scientific wisdom that informs anxieties over deterioration of the natural environment or the health of members of a community. Just as many accept of the accepted truths of the Green Movement are based upon selective application of science, so are the truths guiding health, health policies in the time of COVID-19. So while Hitler used false generalities about Jews and gypsies, environmentalists rely on exaggerated claims often unsupported by logic or science or data. Consider the unfulfilled prophecies of a report by the Club of Rome, limits to growth, that foresaw an inevitable global armed conflict arising from resource depletion before the end of the 20th century. An example of scientism addressing the natural environment might be identified as ecologism. In other words, state-imposed interventions, regulations, and coercion to protect the natural environment. However, he says, these actions must minimize interference with the peaceful exercise of freedom of choice and the pursuit of personal dignity, or the harm to the human environment could exceed the benefits. An effect of ecologism is to encourage intolerance toward individual choice and to oppose private ownership of property and resources. Evidence of this is found in acts of eco-terrorism and the fact that confiscation of private property to promote environmental goals has attracted support. In the extreme, environmentalists tend to claim that nature is inherently and objectively valuable. But this complaint is incoherent since human actions are an inescapable part of the reality of the natural world. Therefore, attempts to conjure up ethical reasons for injunctions against human alteration or some parts of the use of some parts of the natural world are arbitrary and inappropriate. And similarly, edicts in support of public health that disregard human agency have caused a rupture in the social fabric by, by inducing people to view others as a dangerous vector of disease. I think they're looking at the unvaccinated or the unmasked here, maybe both. Mask mandates for an entire population, community-wide lockdowns, and vaccine passports contradict a foundational notion of justice, that innocence, innocence rather is presumed until guilt is proven. Meanwhile, governments encourage citizens to inform on or to shame anyone refusing to accept the lines drawn by their arbitrary public health goals. One of the worst elements of pandemic policies is the impact on children of public health mandates. Kids have been terrorized by being told that violations of these rules might cause the death of a loved one. In turn, such fears not only destabilize their mental health, but they might also drive a wedge between them and their parents. Now, it's notable that within less than one year, nearly all the state-imposed non-pharmaceutical interventions that contradicted decades of established medical and scientific knowledge. It's almost like science was following policy rather than the reverse. 
For example, border closures had been considered inappropriate. Mask wearing as a general strategy, ineffective. Quarantining the entire population, misguided. And the human immune system was seen as the first line of defense against pathogens. All were canceled in the same way as were statues of Confederate War veterans. Shifting attention from public health policies to those addressing the natural environment, those that disregard the human environment can be counterproductive toward achieving their goals. Restraining individuals on the grounds of protecting the natural environment might make communities worse off if entrepreneurs are unable to serve as the engines of economic growth and innovation. Christopher Lingle says, as it is, Suppressing access to market-based rewards or profits tends to slow the pace of technological advance and dampen gains in income. So while fewer advances in technology can hinder rising incomes, doing so will also inhibit both the means and motivation for environmental protection. In all events, government intervention and regulating human behavior are not the only ways to resolve problems of the natural environment or the health of members of a community. Greater intellectual energy should be put into ways to harness the beneficial effects of voluntary choice in markets as a substitute for the compulsion of government mandates. Now, for their part, economists have exerted considerable effort to examine ways in which the pricing system can bring about desired reductions in pollution and other similar problems. Similarly, an alignment of private capacities with public interests led to remarkably rapid advances in vaccine research. Now, this is even if the long-term effects remain unknown. All right, here's another one. This is, uh, this is a topic that I hope has great relevance to you and as, as well as to me because uh, we do not need to be bringing more anger into whatever conversations we're having with the people around us. But finding ground, the common ground these days takes some work. Ken McManigal, though, has an explanation that uh, this is probably worth it. It's an article titled, More in Common Than You Think. And he says, even when we disagree, we probably have more in common than you might think. In fact, he says, I probably want many of the same things you want. I have no respect for those who violate private property, even less, if possible, for those who harm the innocent. Wouldn't you agree? Then why would you and I ever be on the opposite side of an issue? He says, perhaps you tolerate methods of getting what you want that I can't tolerate. I don't believe politics or legislation is ever the right way to do anything. If I want a car, or even desperately need one in order to survive, I know I have no right to steal yours. Hiring a professional thief to steal one for me doesn't make it moral. In other words, no matter what I need or how badly I need it, having a politician impose a tax or entitlement to benefit me at your expense is wrong. I can't have any right to ask them for this favor. Now, if I don't like something you're doing, something that doesn't actually harm anyone's life, liberty, or property, I have no right to kidnap and cage you to make you stop. Nor do I have the right to shoot you if you resist being kidnapped. Hiring legislation enforcers with money that wasn't mine to spend to catch or shoot you on my behalf in the name of the law when you aren't violating anyone is no better. He says, if I don't have the right to do something, I can't have the right to ask anyone else to do it on my behalf. I don't have the right to ask that money stolen from you through taxation be spent on things that I want. I don't have the right to stop you from doing things I don't like if they don't violate anyone. I don't have the right to ask others to impose my will on you as a way to keep my hands clean. My hands would be bloody either way. 
He says, I'm not going to gang up with others and vote to forbid you from exercising your rights, even when I dislike what you do. Not even when this is seen as legal and called a civic responsibility or imagined to be a right. Kent McManigal says, there are limits to what I have a right to do, and even when others refuse to respect those limits, I'm not willing to do wrong, to use politics to get what I want. Oh, trust me, we've all had uh, times where we've indulged that little tyrant inside us. But I think Kent McManigal's making a very strong case why we shouldn't. And a good measure is, do I have, would I be okay to do this against another person? You know, my neighbor's sitting out there on his back porch smoking a joint. Would I be right to go and take away his freedom, to kidnap him, to lock him in a cage, kill him if he resists? And if the answer is no, it doesn't become a righteous act when we ask someone wearing state authority or a state costume to go and do it for us. Shifting gears one last time, uh, my waistline is testament to how little food insecurity I've experienced throughout my life. Having said that, saw an article today that food insecurity has been on the rise throughout the pandemic. And we might be wise to uh, pay attention as to how and why it's happening. This is from Montana Business Quarterly. Daphne Hurling is the author. And she says, the long lines of people waiting for food at the country's food banks is an enduring image of the pandemic's impact on American families. Just as an aside, have you seen video or have you seen photographs of this? I haven't seen a lot lately, but all over the United States, people were turning to food pantries to feed themselves and their families. And these are people who, you know, were told you're not essential. You can't work. And the result was, first of all, a lot of people were experiencing food insecurity, but it was stretching a system that's been in place for decades. And the system, according to this article, has had to reinvent itself almost overnight to make sure they met the need and keep their customers and volunteers safe from COVID-19. In this case, Daphne Hurling says you might remember seeing the staggering number of cars waiting at drive through food distribution centers in places like San Antonio or Minneapolis. That need was also felt locally in cities like Missoula where the Missoula Food Bank and Community Center went from helping 8,723 new customers in 2019 to 21,626 in 2020. Well, it looks like once again we are up against the clock here. Thank you so much for listening to the Disciples of Liberty show. I am Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders today here on the America Out Loud Network.